Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. How's everybody doing? All right. Well, I have the distinct privilege of filling in for Jack as he gets the opportunity to preach the Word of God to some saints in Alyssa Viejo, wherever that is. Um, but we'll get back to him next week and he'll be able to continue to bless us as he takes us through the book of Luke. But this morning, we are going to go back to the book of Philippians. And now that I'm finally done with seminar, I am hoping that we will actually be able to finish before 2008, which is what we had slotted. Well, we'll have to see. But uh, let's go ahead and open up in a word of prayer and just ask the Lord to bless our time together. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for giving us the privilege to be able to come together this morning, this Lord's Day, and to be able to just uh, worship you, to be able to lift up your name and And to be challenged by your word. And Lord, I pray that that would be the case this morning. That you would open up the hearts of the people that you have brought here today, Lord. And that you would allow this message to to speak to their hearts. To challenge them in the areas that they need to be challenged. And to encourage them in the areas that they need to be encouraged. Father, I thank you so much for the privilege to be here. And And I do just pray that you will work through this broken vessel, Father. That you will allow... The words I speak to be your words and to clearly communicate what this passage would have us to to learn. We thank you and we just hold our time up to you in Christ's precious name. Amen. All right. Well, since it's been a while since we've uh, been together, I think I want to give you a little bit of background information just to get everybody up to speed so that we know exactly where we're at with Philippians. Again, um, Paul is the author. He's writing from uh, Rome. He's in his first imprisonment, so he's, he's in jail. He's suffered a, a great deal of tribulation. He's suffered a lot of persecution and all that on behalf of the gospel. He has gone through all of these things for the sake of the cause of Christ so that he might proclaim it. And yet we see in this letter that it is a letter that, despite all of those things, it is a letter that is filled with joy. It is just oozing with it. Everywhere you turn, every chapter you see joy flooding out of it. And yet, Paul is in some pretty tough situations here. But he, he still has that joy, and he thus urges the Philippian believers to be joy of, full of joy also. And as we learned last time, there was, or a couple times ago, I, I lost track. We've, we've learned that there was a group that was known as the Judaizers, and these Judaizers were trying to, to infiltrate and influence the Philippian church. They wanted to uh, have them start instituting certain uh, Jewish customs or practices, most notably the, uh, the practice of circumcision they were trying to, to bring into the church uh, as a means of achieving righteousness in the sight of God. They somehow felt that uh, if you brought in this 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 Jewish practice, these people that, that fulfilled that would, would somehow find favor in God's, in God's eyes. This was a works-based system, though. And this works-based system flew right in the face of the gospel whereby a person is saved by grace through faith plus nothing. And so Paul, being the protective father uh, that he is of this church in, in Philippi, he sought to protect the Philippian, the Philippian believers from these, these Judaizers. He, he didn't want them to go down that road because he, he knew what that road was all about. I mean, he was a, a pretty hardcore Pharisee. 
And so he reminds them of his former manner of life, the life that saw him following the strictest of Jewish customs and requirements. When it had come to the law, Paul saw himself as being found blameless. He possessed a standard that that none of the Judaizers that were coming into the Philippian church could have stood up to, and yet a standard that Paul came to see as being absolute rubbish in comparison to coming and knowing Christ. According to Philippians 3.10, Paul wanted nothing more than to know Christ, to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. The Apostle Paul was joyously aware of the supremacy of Christ. And it was his number one most important goal in life to know him still more until the day that the Lord Jesus would call him home. A day which would bring with it complete knowledge. In writing to the church in Corinth about the supremacy of love, Paul makes reference to this truth. He writes, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have also been fully known. 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve. What Paul is saying is that when the Lord Jesus returns in all of his glory, then you and I will be able to know him fully. But right now, we can only know him in part. The Bible tells us things about Jesus that we could never know apart from them being revealed to us, but it is by no means complete. There's so much more, so much more to Jesus it's like looking at the, top, the tip of an iceberg. You see the tip. It looks massive as its point juts out of the water. But underneath, the part that you cannot see is even more enormous, even more wondrous. It reminds me of one of my favorite hymns that contains these words. It, the words go like this. Could we with ink the ocean fill... And were the skies of parchment made, were every stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. That is a great hymn that helps us to understand how vast and enormous our great God and Savior Jesus Christ really is. And you know, the more we study and the more we meditate on the Word of God, the more we begin to see, like the Apostle Paul, that our, our view of God is dimmed. We're only able to see Him from afar. And granted, that is a glorious, glorious picture. But it is nowhere near as glorious as it will be when we see Him face to face. For on that day... We will get to know Him fully. On that day, we will see Him in the fullness of His majesty, in the fullness of His glory. And you know, it was this thought that filled the Apostle Paul's mind as he wrote this, this joyous letter to the beloved believers, saints at Philippi. It was this thought that drove the Apostle Paul to strive all the more to still know Christ and to be more and more conformed into his glorious image with each passing day. To know Christ and to be more like him consumed the Apostle Paul. And it must consume 
you and he, you and I, every one of us that calls ourselves a Christian. For this is the driving force behind the Christian faith, is it not? Christ is our all in all, and he calls each of us to walk in the same manner in which he walked. But you know, if each of us were to be completely honest with ourselves, we would have to admit that, you know what, we, we don't walk in the same manner in which he walked. We don't love as he loved. We don't even come close. And the reason that you and I do not walk in the same manner as he, as he walked is because you and I are in a current state that is known as progressive sanctification. And as the name implies, it is a process. It does not happen immediately. It progresses over time. The best way to understand progressive sanctification is like this, is to see it in human, human terms, in the human growth process. As humans, we start off, we're all born infants. And then from infancy, we move into childhood. From childhood, we move into being a teenager. And then finally, we reach adulthood. But like the human growth process, sanctification happens at a different rate for everybody. Not all infants learn to walk, for example, by the time they are 12 months old. Not all children learn to read by the time that they are five years old. Not all teenagers learn how to drive by the time they reach 16, a fact that continues well into adulthood long after they've received their driver's license. <laughs> and not all adults learn to be responsible by the time they turn 30 or 40 or 50. Some of us never get it. The point that I'm trying to make is that the sanctification process is different for each and every one of us. But get this, it is still a process. The Christian's movement from spiritual immaturity to spiritual maturity is not an option. It is not kind of one of those things that's a nice to have. <clears throat> it will happen. But it will happen at different speeds for each of us. In Hebrews five twelve through 14, we read this. It says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. People do not always progress in the same way that we think they should. Sanctification is not an exact science where we can know, okay, by year two, you'll be here. By year five, you'll be here. By year 10, you'll be here. It'd be nice if it was, wouldn't it? And we know exactly where we should be, but it, it is not an exact science. But that said, you and I are still called to grow. You and I are still called to be a people that are being sanctified, that are being changed. You and I are still called to be a people who work out our salvation with fear and trembling, according to Philippians 2.13. 
And you know, as I say that, that's a far cry from the let go and let God mentality that's crept into a lot of churches nowadays, isn't it? You and I aren't called to be some kind of an inactive agent with no responsibility. God doesn't, God doesn't save us to where we just now sit there and let go and let God and don't put forth any effort. I mean, that sounds really good. But you know, sanctification is, is a work. George Eldon Ladd in his work entitled The Theology of the New Testament writes this. He says, Because believers do belong to God, because they have been sanctified, they are called upon to experience sanctification and to shun uncleanness. This is a work. It is a work that can only take place in the life of a believer, however. Someone who belongs to God. Somebody who has God's Holy Spirit working in empowering them to live the life that God has called them to, to, to live. But again, it is a work nonetheless. It is not a work unto salvation. That's not what I'm getting at. That's already occurred. But it is a work whereby the believer, through the enabling power of the Holy Spirit, applies all diligence, according to 2 Peter 1.5, to grow in the character traits of godliness. Let me put it like this. When it comes to your conduct, you need to be people who act as if the responsibility to live godly is all yours. It is on you. And yet, you are to give all of the glory for that godly conduct to God. So act as if the responsibility is all yours. And give all the glory to God. Because you would not be able to do it apart from His Holy Spirit working in you. This, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, is sanctification. Our striving to grow in obedience to the risen Lord. And we do this so that we do not become lazy. But we also admit our inability to do it on our own power. And this keeps us from becoming proud. From becoming boastful which God does not want us to do. As each of us grows in the sanctification process, we will become more and more conformed into the glorious image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. With each passing day, we can take steps to mature in our Christian walks such that we might bring more and more glory to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. John Murray puts it much more eloquently than I ever could when he writes this. He says, Indeed, the more sanctified the person is, the more conformed he is to the image of his Savior, the more he must recoil against every lack of conformity to the holiness of God. The deeper his apprehension of the majesty of God, the greater the intensity of his love to God, the more persistent his yearning for the attainment of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. The more conscious will he be of the gravity of the sin that remains and the more poignant will be his detestation of it. Was this not the effect in all the people of God as they came into closer proximity to the revelation of God's holiness? So the question we need to ask ourselves is, how do we go about growing in this process called sanctification? How do we mature in Christ so as to become more and more and more conformed into His image? Well, this morning I'd like to have you look at three steps that you can take to aid you 
in this pursuit of Christ-likeness. Three steps that will forever draw you deeper and deeper in your pursuit of knowing Christ and the power of His resurrection. Open up your Bibles with me, if you would, to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 12 through 16. And I want you to see for yourselves that these three steps are presented right here in the Word of God. After having just called all of his past accomplishments as a Pharisee rubbish in comparison to knowing Christ, Paul now goes on to talk about his desire to be found in Christ, to know him, to know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, to be conformed to his death, all, all so that he might may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul then goes on to say this in verses 12 through 16. Not that I have already obtained it or have become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if anything, you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Whew. There's some stuff in there. There are some meaty nuggets to just sit and chew on. Well, Paul wants us to... Paul wants us to know that he, he has a desire to see these believers grow. I mean, he wants them to experience the same joy, the same sanctification that has been prodding him along, that has been conforming him more and more into the image of Christ, that has blessed his life beyond measure. He wants the same for these Philippian believers, so he opens up his apostolic life so that these believers might follow his example. And it is in his example that we find these three steps that each of us must take if we are to mature in Christ. So regardless of where you're at in this uh, sanctification process, if you are saved, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, this message has relevance for you this morning. The first step that you must take if you are to mature in Christ is the step of possessing the right attitude. Possessing the right attitude. Notice what Paul says in verse 12 in the first sentence of verse 13. He says, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. Well, to help put this in proper perspective, I want you to remember that we are talking about the Apostle Paul. I want to just share with you very quickly some of his resume that he lays out for the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 28, where he writes, In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have spent in the deep, I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. 
Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. I mean, in looking at the life of Paul, you cannot help but be amazed at the multitude of heartaches and sufferings that he endured on behalf of the gospel. I mean, he had more happen to him in a single day than many of us will ever have happen to us in a lifetime. To compare our list of sufferings to his would be laughable at best. I mean, most of us have no idea, right, uh, what it means to be persecuted. So we revel in those moments whereby once a co-worker made fun of us because we refused to have a drink at the company party. Oh, the torture, the ridicule. It's terrible, the hardship I had to undertake on that for the cause of Christ. Paul suffered, and he suffered a lot. I mean, if anybody had the right to just sit back and say, you know what, I have arrived, it would have to be the Apostle Paul. I mean, the guy is responsible for giving us nearly half the books in the New Testament. He established all kinds of churches and he did more to advance the cause of Christ than any of his counterparts. And yet notice his attitude. Notice the humility that is in this man of God. In his mind, he has not arrived at perfection. Some 30 years after his conversion, he still didn't know everything that there was to know about Jesus Christ. God still had more to teach him. God wasn't done teaching Paul everything that he wanted to teach him. And you know what? Paul knew it. Now let me ask you a question. If Paul, with all of his knowledge, with all of his experience, had not achieved perfection... Is there anybody in here who thinks that they have? Do you think, honestly, that you have surpassed the Apostle Paul to the degree that you have nothing more to learn? That you can go no farther or that nobody can teach you anything new about God? That when you walk in those doors, you don't have anything that you can be taught about God? Paul didn't think that. He didn't think more highly of himself than he ought to. In fact, in 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul writes, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Paul knew all too well that he was a sinner who was saved by grace. He never thought for a moment that he, he could obtain perfection in this life. He fully realized that there was a battle that was taking place inside of him, a battle between his renewed mind and his depraved body, his flesh, a battle that he knew would not be fully won until the day that Jesus Christ called Paul to come home. And yet, despite this knowledge, Paul still sought to grasp that which was unattainable. He still sought to wage war with the members of his body. He still sought to press on so that he may lay hold of that for which also he was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. The term that Paul uses here, press on, was originally a hunting term. And it meant to pursue an animal. 
and later became used to describe a foot race. But the idea that is being conveyed here by Paul is that he is actively pursuing Christ likeness. He is pressing on towards it. Like a runner in the Olympic Games, Paul is running down the, the track. He's straining with every muscle, every fiber that he has. He's sparing nothing. Everything in his body is being pushed along to its maximum limit so that he may be as Christ-like as possible. That's what he's doing. That's how he lived. You know, and there's no doubt in my mind that Paul was remembering the day when his life was forever changed, the day when Christ Jesus laid hold of him on the road to Damascus. It was there that that Paul's life took a dramatic turn. No longer would he be the persecutor of the cause of Christ. No, he would go on to become one of its greatest promoters. From that day on, Paul sought to grasp the unattainable. He sought to lay hold of that which will never be laid hold of on this side of heaven. But instead of being discouraged by this truth, Paul embraced it. His attitude was such that he was never satisfied with partly knowing Christ. He was never satisfied with with only partly living for Jesus. Paul was never satisfied with his present spiritual condition. And you know what? You and I should never be satisfied either. The Christian life is smothered, absolutely smothered in grace. And it is that grace which pushes us to strive all the more in our pursuit of knowing and living in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. So here is the question that needs to be asked. Are you satisfied? Are you satisfied with where you are at spiritually? How you answer that question will go a long way in determining your spiritual maturity. It has been said that a man's reach should always exceed his grasp. This was certainly true of Paul. And it must be true of every one of us who seeks to mature in Christ. This brings us to the second step that you must take if you are to mature in Christ. The step of pursuing the right goal. Pursuing the right goal. Picking things up in verse 13, right after the place where Paul had not regarded himself of laying hold of it yet, and going through verse 14, we read, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The one thing, the one thing that Paul presses on towards, the goal Presses on towards a goal, a goal that will not be fully realized until he gets to heaven. And Paul's goal is to know Christ perfectly, to be conformed into his image such that he might walk just as he walked, that he might practice the same graces, the same manners that Christ practiced. And that he might do it perfectly. To assist Paul in the pursuit of this goal, he sought to do two things. So he's got two things that are going to push him towards that one goal. The first was to forget what lies behind. And the second was to reach forward to what lies ahead. As he practiced these two things, Paul was able to mature in his walk with the Lord. Thus he became a little more like the man that he desired to be. A little more. Each day as he practiced these two things. In forgetting what lies behind, 
This did not mean that Paul sought to obliterate the past. I mean, if he did, we can just go back and, and eliminate what he had just said in, in, in the beginning part of chapter 3. He goes on to say all of his accomplishments as a Pharisee, all of his failings as a Pharisee. So he's not just saying obliterate the past, but rather what he means is that he will not allow the things in the past to absorb his attention to such a degree that it impedes his current progress. He doesn't want anything to get in the way of his pursuing that goal, of his pressing on and becoming more Christ-like. For Paul, forgetting the things behind could include both positive and negative events. I mean, on the positive side, it would have been very easy for Paul to look back on all that he had done, all of the churches that he had planted, all of the ministry that he had done and completed, all of those things. He could have just said, I've done enough. It's time to rest. But he didn't do that, did he? And praise God for that. Because we've been missing some great... Great letters. On the negative side, I'm sure Paul could have allowed himself to be overcome with guilt and shame. Because remember, this is, this is the same Paul that was a persecutor of the early church. If he would have allowed his mind to dwell on it enough, I'm sure that Paul could have really put a guilt trip on himself. Because he sat there. And he watched a young believer by the name of Stephen get stoned to death. And he sat there in hearty agreement to what was going on. I mean, I'm sure with something like that, he could have convinced himself that he was not fit to serve. I mean, after all, he was in complete agreement of a man being put to death. Both of these can be true of us too, can't they? On the positive side, we can look back at how long we've been serving. We can convince ourselves that we deserve a break. That it's time to let somebody else step up. I've done enough. Been in the same position for two years now. It's time to let somebody else step in. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I don't mean that you can't ever switch ministries. Unless, of course, you're in children's ministry, which is exactly what that means. <laughs> it just means that you should never stop doing some form of ministry. On the negative side, we can look back at all of our failings and think that we shouldn't serve. And, you know, there may be instances in which that's true. Maybe the time's not right. But we must always remember that God is able to remove our sins, is he not? He tells us as far as the east is from the west, an immeasurable distance, he can take our sin away. 1 John 1.9 also tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is no sin that goes beyond God's ability to forgive there is nothing that any of you could have done to put yourself in a place where you cannot be forgiven by our gracious God. If you've gone to God and you've repented of your sin, and He's forgiven you. 
So you've got to ask yourself, if God's forgiven you, then who are you to hold on to that? Who are you to hold on to your past failings and use them as a means to not serve the God who has forgiven you of those sins? Some of you need to embrace God's forgiveness. You need to embrace it so that you can be freed up to serve His body. Some of you need to stop looking at what lies behind because it's preventing you from running the race in the manner that you should. It's getting in the way of you pursuing God the way that He calls you to. Now the other thing that Paul did was he reached forward to what lies ahead. Paul's intended imagery here is that of a runner. He's straining his entire body as he works his way towards that finish line. His eyes are fixed. They're straight ahead. He stays unswerving, on course, till the very end. For Paul and for each of us who want to mature in Christ, the goal that is to be ever before us is Christ-likeness. And get this, because it's going to be a goal that's going to be just out of our reach in this life. But get this, not in the life to come. When God calls us home, we will have perfect conformity in Christ. But until that day, get this, brothers and sisters, until that day, there is a race to be run. And God is calling us to run it. To keep our eyes forever fixed on the author and perfecter of our faith until that day when we will see Him in His fullness and in His glory. In a race, you don't ever look back Your past accomplishments, your past failures must not take your focus away from your pursuit of Christ-likeness. It is a pursuit that will find its ultimate culmination as God brings us home to be with Jesus forever. Now, having covered the first two steps in maturing as a Christian, namely possessing the right attitude and pursuing the right goal, We're now ready to look at the third step that you must take if you are to mature in Christ. And that is the step of practicing the right standard. Practicing the right standard. Continuing along with verses 15 and 16, it says, Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which... We have attained. Paul revisits an idea in verse 15 that he introduced first in verse 12, and that is the term perfect. Now, in verse 12, he admits to not having become perfect. But in this verse, he includes himself in the group of those who are perfect. So the question needs to be asked, is Paul perfect or not? I mean, has he got it all together or doesn't he? Well, to answer this question, we need to understand that the root of these words come from a noun whose primary sense has to do with the goal or the aim toward which something is pointing, often in the sense of completing or fulfilling. So in verse 12, Paul was acknowledging that he had not yet completed his goal. He had not 
yet become perfect as Christ is perfect because he had not yet attained to the resurrection of the dead, which is talked about in verse 11. Since he hadn't been called home to heaven yet, he was not perfect in the sense of being all that he will be in glory. But in verse 15, however, Paul is referring to his and others' movement from infancy to adulthood. He uses the term in regards to maturity. Maturity, not absolute perfection, for that can only be achieved when we're united with Christ. When Paul uses the term five other times regarding people, he is referring to a certain level of spiritual growth and stability. He is talking about a move from spiritual infancy to spiritual adulthood. And that is the difference. Paul wanted to encourage others who had progressed in the faith to recognize their need to make Christ's likeness their goal too. But he realized that believers are at different points, different places along that sanctification process. So Paul trusts God that he will eventually lead them to have the same pursuit that he does. Paul is confident that God will continue to work in the lives of the Philippians, bringing them to a point of maturity such that they are living by that same standard to which they have attained. Paul knew absolutely that the one who began a good work in them would be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus will perfect it. God was working in that body of believers in Philippi. And you know what? He's working in this body too. He's working in this body of believers. But if we are to mature in Christ, then we must live by God's standards. We can't be a people who waffle back and forth, holding to different uh, standards that whenever they best fit our needs or our wants or our desires. We need to be a people that measure ourselves not against the standards of our society, but against the holiness of God and against the holiness of God's word. This is to be the standard by which you and I live by. You know, the vast majority of people in this world, they do not make it their goal to know Christ. You talk to the average man or woman on the street and they will not say that that is their goal. They don't care to know Christ. They don't care to know the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death. These things don't even cross their mind. They're too busy pursuing the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. That is their God. That is what matters most to them. That is what they are pursuing. They have no interest in the things of God. In light of this, don't you think that as men and women who have been saved by grace, who have God's Holy Spirit working in their lives, that we should be different? That we should be operating under a different standard? I mean, how you live as a Christian should be radically different from how that man or woman is living on their own standards. How your non-Christian neighbors are living should be radically different from how you're living. Brothers and sisters, God has called us to live in a radically different fashion from those around us. Matthew 5, 14 through 16, Jesus said this, He says, You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. 
Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The standard that you and I as believers have been called to live by should make us stand out like sore thumbs. I mean, if we're blending in too much, then we may want to check ourselves to see which standards we're living by. Now, it's my fear that some of you think you're all right because your conduct is a little bit better than the vast majority of people. You think that because you're a notch beyond where some of your neighbors are or co-workers are, that you are somehow right or you're in a good place. But realize, you are comparing yourselves to people who don't know Christ. That is not the standard we are to live by. The standard we are to live by is Christ. He is the standard. Not our neighbors. Not our co-workers. But Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, as a children's pastor, I... I see it all the time. I see parents falling into that trap of comparing their kids to other kids that are in the world, that aren't being raised in a Christian home. And they're trying to do everything that that non-Christian's trying to do rather than really honing in on that child's character and teaching that child the things of God. We can't think that we're, we're doing what we need to do when we're a little bit better than the vast majority of people who never darken the doorway of a church. That is not our standard. It's not enough. Do you think God called us to be content with being better than the vast majority of our culture? He has given us so much more. I mean, He's poured blessing upon blessing upon blessing on our lives, and yet we continue to waste it and squander it, pursuing the things of this world rather than pursuing Christ, who is to be our all in all, our everything. Paul was a man who refused to be content with where he was at. He labored immensely so that he could know Jesus more. He strained and he struggled to walk in obedience, not so that he could gain the favor of Jesus, but because he already had it. Paul understood the gift that was given to him, and as a result, he sought to know the one who gave him that gift with all that was within him. How about you? How are you advancing? Are you longing to go forward? Are you striving with all of your might to walk in a manner worthy of your calling? I fully understand that each of us, though proceeding along the same path, may, may be at different stages of progress. We're at different places, but wherever you are on that path, let me exhort and let me encourage you to pursue Christ with all that is within you. Let me encourage you to live in accordance to God's glorious standard 
as is laid out for you and I in this book that we call the Bible. This morning we've discovered three steps that we must take if we are to mature in Christ. These steps were all seen in the, in the life of the Apostle Paul and hopefully they will become evident in our lives as well. The first step was the step of possessing the right attitude. The second step was the step of pursuing the right goal. And the third step was the step of practicing the right standard. As we have learned today, the Christian life is a process. With all of us developing and maturing at different intervals and different stages, and yet despite all of that, there is still the need for each of us to grow, for each of us to mature in Christ. God has called us to grasp for the unattainable. And as we do, I think that we will find ourselves drawing near to our risen Lord. That we will be coming closer and closer to Him until the day whereby He finally calls us home. That day where we will see Him perfectly and thus begin to know Him perfectly. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for giving us the opportunity to be able to come together this morning to hear from Your Word. And Lord, to look at our own lives to see where we are at. Lord, you are so gracious to us. You've given us so much. And yet, Lord, I confess that I do not always pursue you the way that I should. Father, I pray that I would repent of that. And that I would run in the same manner that Paul ran that I would have a proper attitude, that I would have the the right goal to pursue you, and that I would practice the right standard, that I would not allow myself to get sucked up into the things of this world, the things that will, will burn in the end. Lord, help us all to be the men and women that you call us to be. Help us to follow Paul's example so that we might mature in Christ, that we might become a little more conformed into his image, always looking forward to that day when you call us home, where we will be able to be with you through eternity, seeing you perfectly in all of your glory. We thank you for that. And we eagerly look forward to that day in Christ's name. Amen.